I'm sorry. I'm like stepping all over everything you're saying. Well, go ahead. About that. Go I, ahead. I drank a lot of coffee and I like this record. <laughs> This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Well, here we are. It is part two of our ongoing series on Bruce Springsteen, 20th Century Boss. And uh, we are talking about a very, very big record in Bruce's career, which is Born to Run. Released on August 25th, 1975, Born to Run has sold 6 million copies and spawned some of the most beloved and iconic songs of Bruce's career, starting with the title track and including pretty much every other song on the record, including Thunder Road, 10th Avenue Freezeout, Backstreets, She's the One, and Jungle Land. See, I almost said the entire track list, but, you know, I didn't want to go overboard. This album is also famous for being Bruce's make-or-break album. His first two albums, which we discussed in our previous episode, were commercial failures, and he needed to make a hit to keep his career going. The title track in particular was crucial. He spent six months making this record. In the Wings for Wheels doc that accompanies the 30th anniversary of Born to Run, that edition that was released in 2005, you can see Bruce going through all the tracks that didn't make it into that song. String sections, female backing vocals, sound effects, even a spoken word interlude. Born to Run was a conscious attempt to write the greatest rock and roll song of all time, an endeavor that 99 times out of 100 ends with an embarrassing failure. And yet Born to Run miraculously is the one smashing success in that scenario. The rest of Born to Run, the album, walks the same tightrope. The songs on this record are overloaded with sounds, flowery lyrics, operatic emotions, and absolutely insane ambition. It is the very definition of too much. For some people, this record really is too much. There are plenty of people who hear Thunder Road or Backstreets and roll their eyes. If you go into Born to Run with even an ounce of cynicism, The magic spell that Bruce is trying to conjure will instantly dissipate. If you can leave your cynicism at the door, however, is there a more uplifting album in the rock canon? I don't know how many times I've heard this album, but I still get chills at the start of Thunder Road. I still get choked up during the bridge of Backstreets. I get chills again when Bruce does that climactic countdown, one, two, three, at the end of Born to Run. And I will still listen to Clarence's sax solo in Jungle Land by myself in the car late at night driving around whenever I'm in need of serious emotional catharsis. If you're going to talk about Born to Run, you need to do it with someone who gets it. Someone who is going to have the same outsized feelings that you do. So I called up Jeff Rosenstock. If you don't know Jeff, he is one of the best and most inspiring live performers in rock today. In 2016, he released what I think is one of the best rock records of the decade, Worry, finding common ground between his punk, ska, and classic rock influences. In January of this year, he put out his record Post, an early candidate for the album of the year. And look, I know it's early and I shouldn't be saying things like that, but Post is really that good. 
Jeff loves Born to Run, and you can tell by the kind of music that he makes. He's aspiring to that same mix of over-the-top emotionalism, uh, outsized ambition, and uh, way too much heart. (laughs) You can hear that in his music, and he gets that from Born to Run. So I knew that he would be a good guy to talk to about this, and Jeff did not disappoint. Um, I should warn you ahead of time, you know, we occasionally swear in this podcast, uh, but this episode rivals our Steve Gorman episode for the most F-bombs. There's a lot of F-bombs in this episode, but they're not out of spite, they're out of joy. (laughs) It's just because we're so excited to talk about this record, and we have so much emotional investment in it that uh, we both kind of lost our minds a little bit talking about it. So as long as you don't mind some colorful language, I think you will enjoy this conversation between me and Jeff Rosenstock on Born to Run. So Jeff, um, I know that you are a Born to Run fan. I'm not sure exactly where this How falls. How do you know that, by the way? Well, I had a feeling. Is it just obvious? Well, we did an interview recently where we were talking about about your latest record post and you had a straight comment saying um i try to make every song born to run oh okay and that that kind of sent me down a wormhole i i think i googled and i figured it out that you were a born to run fan i guess i'm wondering where does this fall for you in terms of your overall springsteen fandom is this your favorite record do you like other records more is this the only springsteen record you like oh i mean this this is definitely my favorite record like you know, I fuck with darkness on the edge of town and the river and uh, in Nebraska and, you know, born in the USA and the live records and like, you know, I'm a fan and, and all that. But uh, like, yeah, this is this is like every time I'm like, oh, you know what? I think like the first off of the river is kind of better than I like. Listen to this. I'm like, no, this record is it's, it's crazy. It's a perfect record. It's awesome. I love it. Now, I, from what I know about you, you know, we've talked a couple times, and I know about, a little bit about your background, you know, that you, you come from a punk background, I know you played in ska bands growing up. I'm wondering, like, when did you come to Springsteen? I mean, was it when you were younger, or did you have to get a little bit older, maybe, before you got into it? Like, what was your entry point? Um, I definitely had to get older. My entry point was born to run. Um, I think I probably just, like, heard the song Born to Run, like on like um on the radio or maybe like at a bar or something i was like what is this so it was like this is bruce springsteen and like probably at the at that point like my knowledge of bruce springsteen was like streets of philadelphia like it it took me a really long time to find out about any music that wasn't punk um but uh yeah i probably i didn't know much i was like oh shit this is awesome so i went on like uh, depending on what time it was, either oink dot whatever or what dot CD or one of those like MP3 message board things. Um, and I got a copy of the record that I was just like, oh shit, this is the best, you know? And it really kind of informed everything from there on out. Now, let's elaborate on that, you know, because you you, t- you said a little bit earlier about how, you know, some people will bring up other Springsteen albums, and, and you've, you've kind of gone on and heard those records, but this is still the one for you. You called it a perfect record. Why is this a perfect record? Why is this, why was it such a big impression on you, you know, at that point? Um, I mean, I don't know. Every, like, it's a perfect record. Every song is good. That's That's an important part of it. <laughs> and it has, like, 
you know, it, it, it has ups and downs to it. It has dynamic to it, you know? It has, like, that crazy spacey part in Jungle Land. It has a bunch of, like, recurring motifs with Clarence Clemens melodically. Um, the way Bruce Springsteen sings is just, like, he does not give a fuck. And also, simultaneously, no one has ever given a fuck more than he cares about whatever he's singing about in that exact moment. Like... That like that yell at the end of Jungle I'm like, it's just like, whoa, dude, you know, um, it's great. It's just like it's a powerful record. There's a lot happening, and all the song, and and then on top of that, every song is really good, and it sounds really good, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it, this is intriguing to me because you know, for this series, I've, I'm actually talking to a bunch of people who come from punk rock. Uh, you know, talking to you, you know, Brian Fallon from the Gaslight Anthem, Patrick Stickles from Titus Andronicus, and uh, even just from talking to other, and Julian Baker uh, has a punk background. I mean, just, and just from talking to punk musicians in general, I, I find that Springsteen is often a touchstone in a way that, like, other classic rock people aren't. Like, sometimes, like, you know, like those people might sort of turn their nose at the Stones or something or the Who or whatever, like they, they'll really be in the Springsteen. What do you, why do you think that is? I don't know. You know, I haven't thought about that till you just mentioned <laughs> that right now. It's totally true for me. Um, like what was it about to I you think you that, that energy, Yeah, you know, like it, like the music has that energy. It's just like, it, it doesn't give a fuck. It's just going, you know, it's going like hard. Everybody's just like, rocking not everybody's rocking so hard that sounds stupid but like everybody's just like going full force you know what i mean um and uh i think it's that energy that like attract that that attracted me to punk it's that energy that like makes me still like the punk records that i still like you know like the ones i feel like that have survived uh you know having listened to like 8,000 punk records and being like, okay, maybe they're not all the best record of all time. Like the ones that are good have that energy. And I think, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen has that energy of some of, of like someone who's fighting against something, you know? Um, and I don't think other cla- I think a lot of other classic rock is there to be cool. Right. Which I was just like, I don't know. I've never felt cool, but I always, I felt like I'm fighting against something, you know? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. I, Maybe he's not cool. Maybe that's the thing. Well, I think, I think that. Like, well, I think he is cool, but he also has an element to him where, and I think this record is sort of the epitome of this. Like, it would be easy to make fun of this record. Like, if you want to hate this record, there's a lot on here to make fun of. It, it, it's over the top. It's very uh, earnest in places. Uh, it's very melodramatic. Uh, you could make fun of the sax solos if you want to do that. Um, you know, if you come at it from a cynical place, um, you know, it, it can be easy to satirize. But, like, uh, that's also, I think, what endears it to people who love it, that there's a fearlessness to it, that, like, no, this is what – I'm putting my heart out there. <laughs> I'm going to howl. Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's such a successful record, like, uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, to, like – as far as like mass appeal goes, because I don't think people when left to their own devices approach music from a point of cynicism. You know, I think that like people who have gotten into it a little too deep or like, I I don't know, maybe, maybe then that's a defense mechanism for liking anything that somebody's going to like make fun of them for. But I think, you know, people listen to music 
because they want to feel something. And I don't think you're going to do that without being melodramatic or being over the top occasionally and being earnest. You know what I mean? Like he's feeling something. Right. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's go through the record here. You know, sure. as you were saying there, there aren't really any bum tracks on the record. There's obviously some songs that are a little bit more famous than others, but Let's start Although with... I got to tell you, I cannot remember what's. Oh, was, oh okay, never mind. I remember what it is. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so on, on side one, we have Thunder Road, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Night, and Backstreets. Now, on, on side one, like what jumps out to you? Like, what do you want to hear usually when you put this record on? Is like, it... like, what would I. If I would go to 10th Avenue Freeze Out, but like, that's. Come on. You can't. You can't pick. But 10th Avenue Freeze Out, that was the one that, like, because I'd heard Thunder Road before, um, and you know it's it's like a it's like a staple. Like that's that's a song you hear a lot. Um, and I've also heard Thunder Thunder Road get made fun of a lot. So you know I think originally maybe coming listening to this record like okay yeah Thunder Road's pretty good okay okay but Tenth Avenue Freeze Out is just fucking ripping and the way he's singing is just ridiculous. It's awesome like. It's just like, hell yeah, dude, you know? And it also has, you know, and that's another song where, and I love that song, but like that could have easily devolved in sort of like a white guy soul song, you know, like, oh, he's trying to do like a 60s, you know, Otis Redding type thing on here and it comes off corny, but like he has so much conviction in it, it totally works because. Yeah, I feel like shit is not going to. Come off corny if you're like if if you're just so hyper honest about things, you know what I mean. And this just feels like a hyper honest record. Right. So it's just kind of like I don't know, like you're gonna fucking make fun of somebody, somebody who like has a soul and is showing it to you. Like fuck you, you know. <laughs> that's kind of what this record feels like to me. So you you touched on Thunder Road, and obviously that's that's a classic song. A lot of people would maybe say it's their favorite Springsteen song. Um, you know, there's a couple different versions of that. I don't know if you've ever heard like the live version from London, where it's him and the piano solo, uh, you know, like without the band on it. Is that heard? the seventy-five to eighty-five? Version yeah, yeah, it's in there. I think, I think, I think that one's from the Roxy. But there's also that Hammersmith Odeon double live album from seventy-five. It also there's a version. It's a, it's like the same version basically. But okay, um, I know I, I haven't heard that. I to be honest, I probably even haven't heard all twenty discs of the live LP set. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. There's a lot to dig into on that one. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, that growing up speech—it's like the best thing ever. Oh yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah. Mean, but you know, Thunder Road just being this sort of like, you know, quintessential album starter. I think like we're gonna go on a journey with this album, and it's sort of like like I was listening to the album this morning, and just the way the song opens, it feels like the first scene of a movie. You know, like it's at dawn. Like you could, he's playing the harmonica. There's like the tinkling piano. You can almost see like the movie credits at the beginning of the movie. It's like, we're getting up at dawn. We're going to take off. We don't know where the day is going to take us, but I promise it's going to be exciting. And yeah. it's such a rousing way to begin a record. It, Do you know anything about John Landau and what else he's done? Well, he was a rock critic for a long time. He worked for Rolling Stone and he got into record production. He produced an MC5 record uh, back in okay. the USA, which was like I think considered to be sort of like the like watered down MC5 record. You know, <laughs> like it was didn't have a great reputation. I think he did. 
I'm trying to remember what other records he did before Springsteen. He might have done like a Jay Giles band record or something. But what do you do after this? I'm I'm curious. Well, I mean, We're, like he was like Bruce's guy a- after that. He he became Bruce's oh, okay. manager and like he was like working for Bruce Springsteen. I mean, like Bruce. I mean, John Landau was the guy who wrote that famous line about Springsteen, where he saw him in '74 and he said, "I I just saw a Rock and Roll Future and its name is Bruce Springsteen." And yeah, and probably should have also written i've also seen my own future and its name is bruce springsteen like, <laughs> like he's like this guy's a yeah. genius i'm gonna glom my you know onto this guy and you know, well i mean i have you read the uh the book at all have you read born to run oh yeah have you listened to the audiobook narrated by fucking Bruce Springsteen? I have not. I have not heard that. That oh, sounds amazing. Man. It's great. Like we, that's a, that's a pretty heavy van listen for <laughs> us. Like when we got super long drives, we'll throw that on. And uh, yeah, you talked a lot about John Landau uh, being very adamant that the record feels cinematic and the record has like pushes and pulls in the song, like the beginning of Backstreets, for example, or the beginning of Thunder Road, um, and like where to like give it some space to let it breathe and stuff like that. Um, I think it's important. I think it's like, I think it's like, this is a record that, you know, like, yeah, I guess if you're a dick, you could be like, well, it's got a, it's got goofy sex solos, but like, uh, you know, it's a record that ultimately respects you as a listener and is just like, yeah, I'm going to fucking like, like, it feels like it wants to set it, set up a nice scene for you. You know right. what I mean? Set up something, set up 40 minutes that you want to be stuck in, you yeah, know? Totally. And, you know, especially comparing this album to like the first two Springsteen albums, which, you know, are great in their own right, but like he really learned as a writer to pare down his lyrics and to, you know, because the first couple albums, there's so many words, there's so many images, and it's really great, but it, yeah. in terms of following a coherent story, it can be a little hard to always know what's going on. Whereas in these songs, you know, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but like that song Meeting Across the River, for instance, like you hear that song yeah. and you're like, you see that unfolding in your head. Like he describes that so well. Uh, you see the characters, yeah, you see the it's actions. Super, like it hints at like Nebraska shit later. Totally. On, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's like his first great crime song. Like, you know, yeah. which he would. Yeah, really... he wrote a lot of damn crime songs. He huh? did. He <clears throat> did. And uh, especially you know after this record, going into the late seventies, early eighties, that was a big thing for him. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. This so, music gets kind of crimey. I like it. <laughs> um, the song that always. Uh, that, that jumps out to me on this side and might be my favorite song on the record is Backstreets. And yeah. um, it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, there's a, I was reading about the sequencing of this album because, you know, he overthought everything with this record. He, he took his time recording yeah. it and arranging it, mixing it. And, but sequencing, I would argue a, the proper amount of thought. Exactly. It's a great record. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, maybe everyone else underthinks their shit. Yeah, that's true. But uh, the, there's this idea of sequencing. It's called the four corners thing, where he, where basically on each side, you know, the first song is sort of like an uplifting, hopeful song, and then the last song on each side is sort of a like a disappointment or you know, uh, kind of like a downer ending. So you have Thunder Road to Backstreets on side one, and you have Born to Run to Jungle Land on on side two, which is yeah. a really interesting so, thing. I hadn't really noticed that until I read that, but that, that's totally right. Well, and also, if you think about those corners, like, the other songs, 
are kind of like tight rock songs. Even Meeting Across the River, which is not that, is like short and tight and concise. And then like he just blows out the, the front and the back of each side, just like <laughs> really lets it expand and open up. Right. I think that that is cool. Yeah, because before Backstreet's, you have the song Night, which is probably the least known song on the record. I feel like every other song on here is like a famous classic. They get played live all the time. You hear them on the radio. Night is sort of like a little under the radar, but like you said, it's a really good, tight rock song. Yeah, it's a cool song. I almost forgot which one it was. That wasn't in my original MP3 stolen (laughs) download of this record. Night didn't even make it to that. Exactly. They, They were like, well, every other song is essential. Maybe we can leave off Night, you know, on the MP3 version. But it's great. It's kind of, it kind of made me think of that song, uh, Out in the Street, which is on the river, which is, like I think, a better-known song. It's kind of the same idea about, like, you work yeah. all week, and now you're going to go out and party and, you know, let off steam. That, it, that, that out in the thing. Streets is a sick song. Night's got a fucking killer drum beat, though. Like, fucking, it's neat, neat stuff. Yeah, totally. I remember seeing Bruce maybe the second or third time I saw him, like in the late 2000s, and they started a show with Night. And I Whoa! Think, exactly. I think that was the beginning of me sort of being like, oh, that's a great song. Because there's so many classics on this record, you feel like, oh, I'm just going to go from 10th Avenue Freeze Out to Backstreets because I'm impatient. I want to, you know, I don't have time for Night. But then I saw it yeah. live, and I'm like, oh, this is a great song. I, gotta, I, I should give Night its due. So Yeah, dude. That's a great song. But Backstreet... Born to Run doesn't have time for your impatience. <laughs> like, no, you got the whole thing. Well, like you said... I it's like a, that. I love records like that. And it's only a 40-minute record. It's like, why are you rushing? Yeah. Take your time. This is like a perfectly made meal. You, you should enjoy every <laughs> morsel of it. Um, but yeah, Backstreet's to me, um, beautiful song about friendship. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like, there was this theory about this song that it was actually, well, that it, that it might be about a man and a woman or that it might be about two men who are like lovers. Because like it says me and Terry in the song. Yeah. So it's like Terry is sort of like a, you know, gender neutral name. It could be a man or a woman. And I saw, I was reading this theory talking about how, yeah, it's about like two men who are together, like they, they're in love with each other and then they break up at the end. And I think Bruce has done live versions where he has told stories before the song and he made it clear that it was a song about friendship but i kind of like listening to it as like a love story between two men because springsteen actually writes a lot of love songs about men like where it's like you know it's like bobby jean being like the most obvious example on born in the usa you know it's a song about little steven uh, or miami steve um but it's like he's talking about his friend but it's almost but it's a very kind of like almost romantic kind of love and it's like i love that aspect like i, I you know that's well, just me reading is the it. kind of love you know exactly like it's like a passionate it, love he's not afraid to, to like let it to express it with a lot of passion you know there's no sort of stoicism you know the, the, like a masculine like a mass like a macho stoicism in this song it's like i love this yeah. guy and he, we, we had a falling out and it destroyed me you know like i miss this guy yeah yeah, I, I I didn't even. I'm looking. Uh, I have the record in front of me, and I'm looking at the jacket right now. Just like, oh shit, 
Yeah, I never, I didn't even know. All I look, if I'm being honest, all I remember is around the back streets and just like that there's 8,000 words in there. And every time I notice, I'm like, yeah. Well, but, uh, when I was, yeah, like, I, didn't, I was listening to this song this morning, and like, I think my favorite part of any Springsteen song is the bridge uh, to back streets, that part where it, I've never looked up what he says during the bridge. I can't understand what he's saying because his he's singing so hard and so bitterly. It's that part where it's like the part before the guitar solo, basically, where he's like, "Wanna street down to the track," and I'm the, you know you know what part I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it ends with the whoa, whoa, and then like the guitar <laughs> solo. Yeah. yeah, that part always chokes me up, and I listened to it this morning for probably the thousandth time in my life and it choked me up again i'm like how can this song still do it it's just something in his voice in that part of the song has so much hurt and like emotion in it it just always gets me that part of the song so i don't know if you like if you've ever had a similar experience with the bridge (laughs) to backstreet i have it all over this record uh that (laughs) That part, the end of Backstreets, the part in Jungle Land. Uh, I know we're still on side one, but like, yeah, that outside the streets, uh, like when it like picks <laughs> up, like that whole end is just like, fuck. Like the first time I heard that, I was just like, oh my god, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. The, I that's. I don't know. To, to, like I. I guess you don't always want to listen to music like that, but does anybody like not want to hear music that makes you feel shit? Right. Like, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's great. That, that part is like, I feel like this, his music and on this record, particularly on darkness a lot too, just is filled with those moments where you're just like, where he just like destroys everything. And like, becomes emotionally one with the listener. You know what I mean? I mean, like, you know, as someone... And in a dark place, too. Right. Well, you know, I mean, as someone who makes records, I mean, you make records, and I'm just wondering if you have any insight on how that can happen. (laughs) Because this was a record, again, it was very labored over, and it was pieced together very intricately to create this, this masterful record, but it could have very easily been sterile you know a lot of times when we talk about powerful performances you know it might be something that was done live that we are capturing a moment and and this record is the opposite of that it's a bunch of moments put together and yet you're able to create these moments in the songs on the record that make you feel emotional many many times like do you know like how do you do that on a record well, I don't know. He did it. I think you. I think you always got to be reaching for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you always have to try, and it's just a matter of listening back and seeing if you fucking did it or not. Yeah. And then if you didn't do it, go back in there and do it again until you do it. Um. And and even then, like it doesn't happen on every note. You know what I mean? I think. I think you got to know the songs. You got to know what you're, what you're trying to achieve there. Yeah. You know, um, like I can think about it on those on those Smith Street Band records that I produced a lot, and on Laura's record too, where it's just like you kind of, as somebody's singing 
you're just trying to hear the, like the take for me, it's either the take where somebody was just like, so focused in and going for it, just like in it and not giving a fuck about anything or the take where like, like somebody wasn't paying attention and accidentally just like touched on this, like emotionally resonant thing that when you listen back, you hear like this voice scratch or you hear like this tiny thing. You're just like, Oh fuck. That's, that's the one. Hope they sang it in key. If not, uh, whatever. Shit could be out of key. It's cool, you know? <laughs> um, and so I don't know. I, th- I think it's just like, I, I mean, this record took forever to make. They were probably just going back until they made sure they fucking got it, you know? Yeah. And it's like playing music live, you know, you want to get it every night, but you don't get it every night. Like sometimes... Some nights are better than others, and and every performance is different, and some performances have different things to it. And I think uh, it's just a matter of knowing which performance was the one that, like, truly communicated what's going on, you know? It's kind of like weird, cosmic, trippy shit, you know? (laughs) It's really intangible stuff, and it's trying to capture something that is uh, a challenging thing to capture, but honestly, your only job in the studio is to just try and do your fucking best to capture that over the next bunch of days. Right. Hey, guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th, and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. All right, so let's go to side two here. Born, sure. to, born to Run, She's the One, Meaning Across the River, and Jungle Land. Uh, four heavy hitters on this side. Obviously, we have Born to Run on this side. You know, the, yeah. the classic song. And what always blows me away about Born to Run is that Bruce basically needed to record this song as a tryout to stay on his label. You know, because his first two records didn't sell very well. His label was basically like, okay, you have one more song to prove that we, you know, that, that we still want to work with you. So, like, knock our socks off. So he spends six yeah. months working on this song. And you really feel when you listen to this song, like, okay, this guy was trying to write the greatest rock song of all time when he wrote this. And he kind of pulled it off. And it's amazing yeah. that he could do that because you feel like, most people that would try to do that would end up coming up with something ridiculously grandiose and silly and overwrought and it wouldn't work. And Born to Run is grandiose and it is overwrought and it is way over the top and crazy, but it's also 
totally uplifting. It has a grit to it, a spirit to it uh, that still communicates. Um, I don't know. To me, that's just something that can't be underrated about this song or underestimated, that he tried, that he kind of called his shot, or like, he's like, I'm going to try to hit a grand slam here. I could because I have to to keep my career going. And he was able to do it. <laughs> and the yeah. rest is history with him. Was it? And, and the rest is history, basically, yeah. after that. Get, yeah, the people know him now. Right. People, yeah. people have heard of him. Now, because, like, you know, to kind of go back to what, you know, I was saying at the beginning of the episode where I was talking to you and you said, you know, I'm trying to make every song Born to Run. Um, like, what did you mean by that? Like, what do you, like, what in your mind does that song signify? I don't know. I, I kind of want to take six months and make every song a perfect song. I know it doesn't work like that, but, like, you know, I I love the story of, like, you know, like he basically had a shot didn't do as good a job with it as people had hoped. And then he had another chance. He was like, I just, I just want to fucking knock it out of the park, you know? And he did. I think that that's awesome. I think, I think the idea of like willing, like you, like willing yourself to make something incredible. Um, I think that's something people have in them. I, I would like, I hope I don't know. I don't know if I do. I like, I don't know. Like that, that gets into murky territory of me saying anything positive about myself. So we're going to have to pump the brakes on that. But, uh, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't, it's like, it's got a lot to it. It's got, I think like, first of all, musically, like the bells on it, like hearing the bells on this was a musical texture that I'd never like I had heard on like there's an FYP seven inch that I have where like they're out of tune bells. And I remember always kind of liking it. Um, but like hearing it, hearing born to run, it was just like, Oh shit. Like it's just like kind of in there and doing its thing. And it's like a really nice texture that makes it feel special, you know? Um, and, uh, like, I, and like the horns, it's just big. It's, it sounds big, but like the verses sound like they could be like parts of them could be Ramon songs, but then it like explodes in a way that the Ramones never would. Like it just kind of has, it's great. It's just a great song and, it, and it's got a sick drum fill in the middle of it. Right. And, you know, it just has a lot of moments that make you remember that you're listening to a fucking cool song. And, and uh, it, it, I think when, when I'm writing, I'm trying to write songs that have moments that make you feel like you're listening to a cool song while you're listening to it. So you don't go like, oh, I should just turn this off or not pay attention. So you're like, oh, shit, this part's coming up. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and, and you, just, you just touched on this. I mean, there's so many different parts to this song and there's so many different elements where it was almost as if he was like, I'm going to put everything I love into one song, like elements of everything. It's almost like a big mashup type song because the, the guitar yeah, riff is... But it works. It totally doesn't sound works. like a mashup. It, 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 totally not. Like he was able to synthesize it into this thing that, that, that works with lyrics that, you know, that you're talking about, uh, you know, like, strap yourself across my engines and, you know, th these lyrics that, again, that people have made fun of. Like, if you want to make fun of Bruce Springsteen, oh, yeah. Born to Run lyrics are, are very easy to make fun of uh, because of just how 
you know, they're very theatrical almost, you know, like, yeah, but then he like, he fucking, he like locks it down and he anchors it by saying, I want to know if love is real. Right. You know? And then you're just like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, it's like, you're like, all right, is this good? Is this good? You're like, oh, fuck. Okay. (laughs) All right. You just killed me. You know? (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's like, I'm going to give you the most serious of all questions in the middle of this sort of West Side Story rock and roll fantasy land. You know, I'm always going to yeah, ground it. Yeah, it's similar, like, on, on Thunder Road, too, where uh, he, I'm sorry, I'm, like, stepping all over everything you're saying. Well, go ahead. About that. Go ahead. I drank a lot of coffee, and I like this record. <laughs> um, the, like, you're scared because maybe you think we ain't that young anymore. It's just, like, it makes all of, like, the imagery... Like it's rooted in like the fucking reality of darkness that like people deal with, you know, Um, and it kind of makes you feel like it kind of makes you feel like the moments that feel goofy, maybe they're not goofy, you know? Right. Well, and I think there's an element to this record of Bruce Springsteen being uh, such a true blue rock and roll guy like a guy that probably felt that records were the things that understood him most or like that these are the things that meant the most sense to him like the records he listened to and and playing in a band and he saw the world through that lens and like i think a lot of this record is using like the language of like great 50s and 60s rock songs to talk about real things you know because that's probably because he was a young man he was like in his mid-20s when he made this record he didn't yeah, he talks t- about like hearing those like I don't know that that audio book like give it a listen. When he talks about hearing the Beatles for the first time, you could just hear it in his voice like how much it meant that he finally found the thing that like you know made his life make sense. You right. know, right? Totally. And I, I I think in a way that's you know I think Springsteen you know obviously he has a huge fan base lots of different kinds of people like him but I think there's a certain kind of person who maybe has a similar background where they cared too much about music growing up because music was their best friend and music was their way of understanding the world and that's how Springsteen was too when he was a, a young young person and yeah. you're born to run and it's like it's him trying to make sense of real life things using sort of the language of rock songs and like the, the world of rock and roll and like kind of, and you could see like how in subsequent records he becomes more and more sort of grounded in reality and he loses some of the illusions that he had as a younger person. But um, I know for me, I think for me, like that's because that's me. And I think that's probably you too. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You were that mean, kind of person too. That, like that, that's me with, with this record, you know? <laughs> that's me with this record, with Pet Sounds, with London Calling, right. with Nutramoke Hotel, and with like a handful of records, and like the Operation Ivy record, and like I just a handful of records that when I heard about it, was just like, like I don't have any friends as, as that means as much to me as this record means to me, right? Which is kind of fucked up, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of fucked up, but then at the same time, if at least you have that record, because if yeah. you didn't have the record, you'd be totally alone. You know, that's how I like. There's been times in my life where I was like, you know, man, it's kind of sad that I relate more to music than other people, but at least music is there. You know? <laughs> yeah, but or. If you didn't have the record, you'd never know how totally alone you truly are. <laughs> oh, 
It's true. It's true. It's like it's a metal detector nah, for loneliness. I'm kidding. Um, so uh, she's the one. Another song that like, uh, you know, we have these again these huge epics on on the record, and then she's the one is just this tremendous rock and roll song that is even better when you hear it on live records. I think, you know, just but you could just tell that like you know Bruce was like, okay, I have a lot of studio kind of creations on this record but i need to write songs that are just going to kick ass live and she's yeah. the one i think definitely fits that bill on this record yeah this song feels like he was like all right rock and roll song is <laughs> e let's go and then we're just like you know what i mean <laughs> so it's a great song i mean you know I, I don't know what else to say about it other than that there's like not a whole lot to dig into other than you know i mean just because it's not a cerebral song it's a song you put on and you rock out to it. You don't need to analyze this song. It's just yeah. it's the great well, beginning I mean, part. But Jesus Christ, think about the side of this record. Like <laughs> this side of this record, like oh, maybe maybe uh, just the uh, just the concept of fucking dancing for three and a half minutes <laughs> exactly. to that to that groove is like. Maybe that's a statement in of in and of itself. You know, well, that's the point. You I know, think, well, I think you need that because you have "Born to Run," which is this you know rock anthem to end all rock anthems. "Born to Run," which yeah, which is basically like if like if you're the kind of person that likes this kind of shit, like that song will just destroy you the first like thirty <laughs> times you hear it, right? And then it's just like do 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 do, you know what I mean? You need yeah, like a kind of. It it ups the ante in a really weird way, and also like kind of lowers lowers it too at the same time. You totally. know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it ups the energy when you get to she's the one, but it's also like okay, we're we're gonna like not be so intense. We're just gonna have some fun. This is a fun rock and roll song. You know, it's great because after this, we're gonna go into the black hole. Of yeah, we're gonna go meet Eddie across the river. <laughs> it is not, you know. You're not just going for me this time. Yeah. And you you mentioned Nebraska uh, in the context of this song, and it is the same story as Atlantic City, basically, where a guy is going to go off and do a job, uh, and you feel like, okay, this is the worst thing that this guy could do. Like, he, he, yeah. he thinks he's going to make some easy money, but it, it's probably going to go bad for this guy. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of like his favorite story with these sorts of crime songs where it's just a, a hard luck guy, you know, probably a guy who lost his job, you know, he's trying to impress his woman or something. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to pull off this easy heist or I'm going to like carry some money for some guy. Um, Cause that, yeah, that's on Nebraska. And then the ghost of Tom Joad has some songs like that in, in that vein too. But this was the first one also has some like horn, like, like sort of like a like jazzy, horn parts on this song. Uh, oh, is, what, the trumpet solo? Yeah, which is beautiful. Yeah. Really I saw well. um, Bruce Springsteen play this record front to back. Like, I got the, I got Giant Stadium tickets, uh, and uh, there is a old guy in front of all of us, uh, in his seats in front of us, who just kept turning around during the entirety of this song and going, listen up, kids. He never plays this. We're like, dude, fucking shut up, man. Watch it, then. <laughs> Turn around, old guy. <laughs> I saw him play this uh, album in its entirety, too. And I saw it in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the guy who plays bass 
on this song is a guy named Richard Davis, who also played on the Van Morrison record, Astral Weeks. And he's a professor in at the University of Wisconsin. So I saw him play it with Richard Davis That's on cool. stand-up bass. That's pretty awesome. Um, hey, do you know if Gary Talent is a real guy? Because that sounds like a fake name. <laughs> well, it's a real guy. I don't know if that's his real name. I feel like it might be. Well, yeah, obviously, like a yeah, a human being <laughs> played a, played the bass <laughs> on this record. But was his name Gary Talent with two R's and two L's? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know, but I love that because I love that. Like in the E Street Band, you have like the Mighty Max, you have Professor Roy Baton, you have Miami Steve. You know, everyone, you have the big man, obviously. Everyone has a nickname. But then Gary, T- Gary W. Talent is just, it's like Gary Talent is his name. Like, he, that's his superpower is talent. You know, he doesn't need to, one of these, like, crazy nicknames because his own name yeah, is like, kind of awesome. Or it's just uh, a fake name for something. Is Gary <laughs> Talent on all the records? Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's the, he's the uh, reigning bass player. Uh, oh, okay. In the My band. bad. Yeah. So telling tales out of school over here. <laughs> well, let's uh, uh, per Wikipedia, uh, Gary Talent used to be known as the Tennessee Terror, which really? is a hell of a oh, nickname. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, Ooh. it's his real real name. Okay, Gary Good. Wayne Talent. Well, thank you, Derek. Well, yeah, his real name is actually Tennessee Terror. You know, <laughs> and he's like, so I need many something. Tennessee Terrors out there in the world. How would you tell them apart? So let's get to the last song, Jungle Land. And if Thunder Road is like the ultimate album starter, Jungle Land has to be like the ultimate album ender. You know, just turn yeah. out the lights. You know, we are going to have serious emotional catharsis at the end of this record. Um, and I feel like you, if you're going to talk about this song, you have to start with the saxophone solo. And we, we've sort of joked about the sax solos on this record. And I love the big man. I love the sax stuff. I feel like people yeah. who don't like Bruce will sometimes knock that stuff, but the Jungle Land sax solo uh, is like... Do people not like Bruce Springsteen? You keep mentioning that. I feel like this record is the record that people who don't like him single out. So maybe that's why I've brought it up. But yeah, I, feel, I mean, it's weird because when I was growing up, like in the 90s, like getting into music as a teenager, like Bruce was not cool. Yeah. And, and it, oh, yeah. Same. It, same here. And it was sort which of like why it kind of took me a long time to find us. And I kind of had to like hide that I loved him so much because I loved him since I was a little kid and saw Born in the USA and you know like that album came out when I was six or seven and I loved all yeah. those songs. Um, but uh, I mean, now he's like Abe Lincoln. I mean, everyone loves Bruce Springsteen. He's like this everyone American, loves Abe American icon, but. The the sax solo in, in, in Jungle Land, I mean, I am I, I have done that thing where you drive in your car where it's raining outside because you're sad and you put on Born to Run and then the Jungle Land sax solo comes on and you just have a cry because it's just yeah. like this emotional, spiritual, emotional explosion like in your heart. Uh, it, and I don't know if you saw that Wings for Wheels documentary. It's about the making of Born to Run. But, like, no. Clarence talks about how people used to come up to him all the time. And I just say used to because he's no longer with us, of course. But, like, you know, people would come to Clarence Clemens and say that the sax solo in Jungle Land changed their lives because <laughs> it was such a cathartic moment for them. And, uh, you know, and, and like, Bruce was, like, 
he basically composed the sax solo. Like he told Clarence what to play. Like they took like hours and hours to record that solo. Uh, yeah. It, but I don't know. I don't know if you have a similar connection to that part of that song. Uh, if you've ever had a moment to that. But... I feel like I feel more like the, yeah, but I, I didn't feel like, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like just that, uh, when the drums finally come in and the whole thing comes in with it, it's just like, like, I don't know. I get, I get the feeling like, yeah, man, anybody can fucking do anything. It's like chariots <laughs> of fire shit, but it's in, in this crazy song. It's just like, yes. The first time I heard it, it's just like, Oh shit. Um, so yeah, like I, like I can't tell you how many, like this was, this record was definitely like a van staple in uh in like the early like the the days the early days of touring with uh asob and me and dave would listen to this which is like over and over that part is just like you know air drumming we're gonna make it you know what i mean <laughs> like that sax solo just like and it's just the melody and it's the way that everything's working together it's the fact that it is clarence clemens kind of still playing that same like like still playing that same melody that he's playing in born to run that he plays in uh like one of the other songs that he has saxophone in i'm fucking spacing on it right now uh but like that's like him you know it's, I, I don't know it, there's it's kind of like it's that intangible mystical shit with music you know where you don't know why it's you don't know why it's grabbing at you but it's grabbing at you and that's yeah. definitely one of those parts for sure See, I feel like you have a jungle land in you because you've you've done like long songs in you know on worry you had that sort of you know that that side where it was a bunch of small songs put together and on you know on post there's some longer songs on there you just need to do that thing where you have like the string part at the beginning there's sort of like a rocky part then the long instrumental part and then like the the moaning at the end I feel like you could follow that formula and produce your own jungle land at some I feel like that's in you well, I, you're, I mean, you, you are building you know, towards this formula that's the thing <laughs> I feel like I've tried to make my own jungle land like a bunch of times and every time I've done it I'm like this fucking sucks <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, again, and I, I keep hitting the same thing, but I, what always amazes me about Born to Run is that he was walking a really high wire with this record, not only because of where his career was at and how he needed a success in order to just keep his career going, but these songs are like so heightened and, and so big and there's so much in them that if he failed, it would have sounded... Uh, ludicrous you know it would have been easy to fail with this record these were not just straightforward folk songs or straightforward rock songs he was going for something again like he wanted to make one of the greatest albums ever and yeah. there was a very you know specific thing that he had to do in order to do that and if he had just been one degree to the left or right he would have fallen off the wire but he stayed on <laughs> it's all it these off. people too. You know what I mean? It's 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 Max Weinberg and it's Roy Batan, it's Clarence Clemens, and it's the Tennessee Terror himself, Gary Talent. <laughs> like it's all it's all of these people just like you know make just trying to I don't know I I don't know if it's like attention to detail or like what it is, but like yeah, if you 
like, I feel like you have to have a lot of attention to detail because there's a lot of spaces to fuck this up, right. you know? Like, that's the thing. Like, we kind of, if we're going, if we are going back to, like, the, like, it could be, like, written off as goofy or over the top or too much. It's like, I feel like they focus on every part of that and they figured out, like, all right, there's a part where, like, you know, take it back a little bit. We peel it back a little bit or, like, Oh, this part is too much. Let's make it really too much. So it's just like undeniable kind of thing. Right. You know? Right. Um, and it's, and a song like Jungle Land has every, every one of those things in it, you know? Yeah. Well, Jeff, I think your mission still is to, is to do your own Jungle Land. And I know you can do it. I, I have faith in you. I think you, you're, you're on the cusp. <laughs> or, or just play a sax solo. Who cares? <laughs> exactly. Let's just have fun and play the sax. That'd be awesome, too. Maybe you can call up the Tennessee Terror to lay down some tasty bass lines, and that would help. <laughs> yeah, I think my real mission is just get a nickname like Tennessee Terror. Yeah, you should. You, yeah, tell your bass player he's now the Tennessee, or he's like Tennessee Terror Jr., or like, yeah, or the <laughs> oh, second. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's something. It's a starting point. <laughs> Sorry, John. The, the, I don't know. I keep wanting to say the Baldwin Bomber, but that was the name of like our fucking high school or maybe even elementary school football team. So <laughs> you're not that. Okay. Well, we'll work on it. <laughs> Jeff, yeah. it was such a pleasure talking to you about Born to Run. I think we both got really excited talking about it because this is a very exciting record to talk about. But uh, Yeah, th- thanks for uh, wanting to talk to me about it. I feel like I got the big one. That's cool. <laughs> thanks. All right, Jeff. Take care, man. All right, you too. Bye, Steven. So long. Okay, that was me and Jeff digging into Born to Run. You know, these episodes, I I was very conscious about keeping them to about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour because I knew that for me, if I get talking about Bruce Springsteen, I can drone on forever. And a lot of my guests are the same way. They could also drone on forever about Bruce Springsteen. And, I, and maybe some of you want that, but I didn't want to be tedious. But with Jeff, it was a real uh, struggle to not you know, open a beer here in the studio and crack it and, and just go on forever talking about Backstreets. You know, we started singing Backstreets for, for crying out loud, but it was great talking to him about it. So that's it. That's part two of 20th Century Boss. Uh, hope you guys have been enjoying it so far. I want to do a shout out to our producer, Derek Madden. Thank you, dude, for manning the boards, making it happen, being my John Landau in the studio here. And I also want to thank you guys for listening and your support. You know, it's been a great reaction to the series so far. And I would really appreciate it, you know, if you like what you hear to, to help spread the word. Tell your friends about us, leave a review on iTunes, talk about us on social media, whatever avenue you use to get the word out about things you like. Maybe give us a recommendation if, if you're feeling inclined. We are going to be back next week. We're going to have two episodes going up. Parts three and four we have. Part three, of course, is on Darkness on the Edge of Town. That's going to be with Julian Baker, uh, who is a friend of the pod now officially. This will be your second appearance. That's a really great episode. And then we have a truly epic episode with Patrick Stickles of Titus Andronicus talking about the river and actually hung out with Patrick in his apartment late at night talking about this record. We had a pretty awesome conversation about it. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to share both of those episodes. They're both great, great conversations about two great, great records. 
All right, guys, <laughs> hope you're enjoying the journey so far. We're just getting started here with 20th Century Boss. We will uh, talk to you guys again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.